John 7, beginning at verse 14. Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true. And no unrighteousness is in him. Do not Moses, or did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The people answered and said, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work, and you all marveled. Moses, therefore, gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So the reading of God's word, let's pray. Lord, we again ask that you would speak to us now from your holy word, your word which is the truth. Convict us, convince us, comfort us in Christ, and lead us in the way everlasting, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> there are those who think that the Christian faith is just one of many legitimate faiths. I can recall 30 years ago now as a young Christian, to my dismay, listening to a female TV host Say that to millions of people. Well, there are many ways that lead to God. Jesus is just one way. And typically people who say that and think that will say that the Bible is just one of many religious books. And uh, one of the distinctions or the distinctives of the Christian faith, however, is that the Bible is the Holy Bible. It is a book. It is holy. It is separate and different from all other books. Why? Because... We hold that it's the Word of God, that it is the book that is inspired by the living and true God. And so when you open the pages of Scripture, for instance, in the Old Testament, you'll find things like this in Isaiah 45 and verse 5, where God says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. And so God to his servants in the Old Testament would say things like this as he spoke to Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah 1 and verse 7. Whatever I command you, you shall speak. And then in verse 9, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. And so by the time we get to the pages of the New Testament, here is Jesus. Jesus comes along, claiming to be the Son of God, claiming to be the Messiah, as John 5 says, making himself equal with God, on par with God, therefore part of the Godhead. And as Christians, we believe He is God, the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And uh, one of the distinctives, again, of the Christian faith is that there is only one way of salvation. 
There are not many ways of salvation. Those Christians, we believe in the exclusivity of the Lord Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. He says, no man comes to the Father but through Him. It is by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And that faith, by the way, the faith that saves is not a blind faith. It is a faith with reason, a faith that does have evidence. And so we're not called to just take this blind leap of faith. We are to trust in the Word of God and in the Gospel of God, and in particular, in Jesus Christ alone. But we have good reason as to why we believe that Gospel. And so this should raise the question then, how might one know for certain that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true? How might one know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true? Well, in our text for this morning, we basically have an invitation to put the Christian faith to the test. Uh, we have here an invitation, I think, to investigate Jesus' words and to investigate Jesus' works. So that's what we're going to look at. Jesus' words and His works. We will investigate them as He calls us to do so in these verses. First of all, then, we have here, I think, the call to investigate the words of our Lord. That's in verses 14 through 18. Remember, at this point in John's Gospel, in the first 13 verses of chapter 7, uh, it is the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. And uh, Jesus' brothers, they're asking him, basically saying, Jesus, hey, are you going to go up to Jerusalem? And they are pushing him to go up there and to manifest his works, not to speak, not to teach. After all, in John 6, because of his sermons and teaching, many turned away from him and followed him no more. So I think his brothers are seeking to do damage control. Go up there, just do your words, heal many, and they will be convinced you are the political leader, the quote, Messiah. And Jesus sends them ahead of him because that's not his way of operation. That's not why he came. And eventually he follows behind them according to his timetable, the divine timetable, for his hour had not yet come. His hour had not come to die. It had not yet come for him to go to Jerusalem. And so now the time had come. And so in our passage for this morning, we find Jesus there at the feast in verse 14. And what is he doing? Well, he's in the temple and he's teaching. Probably um, making his brothers nervous as can be. And so that's what Jesus is doing. And so we're told there in verse 14, that's what's going on. Verse 15, the Jews marvel. They're beside themselves. They're full of amazement and wonder. There's something striking here, something new to them. And, and what is that? Well, in verse 15, they say, how does this man know letters having never studied? It doesn't mean he knows the alphabet. Although that would have been the case, I'm sure, but uh, the Hebrew alphabet or Aramaic alphabet. But uh, the point that they are making is this man is teaching doctrine. He is teaching and expounding on the scriptures. Remember, he did this when he was 12 years old, Luke 2 tells us. And they were amazed then. 
And Jesus, when he teaches, he doesn't teach as the scribes. No, he teaches as one who has authority. And so they're marveling because he's never been to their seminaries. He's never followed the rabbis. He's never sat under rabbinic teaching like Paul did under the feet of Gamaliel. And yet he has this learning. And so that's going on. They obviously will have an issue with Jesus having this ability and having and possessing this divine authority. And so what follows then is Jesus' answer to a question. The question goes like this. How do we know that Jesus teaches the truth? How do we know that Jesus teaches the truth? And so he will answer that question that they are asking in their own hearts and their own minds, which he knows because Jesus knew what was in man. So what will he say? There are three things here that he will say to this. The first one is, he notes that his doctrine is of divine origin. His teaching, his doctrine, comes down from heaven. It is of divine origin. It comes from God and specifically his Father. If we look there at verse 16, he says, well, John tells us, Jesus answered and said to them, My doctrine is not mine, but his Who sent me? Who sent Jesus? The Father. That's repeated in John's Gospel and the other Gospels. That's why in probably your translation when it says Him or His, that pronoun is capitalized, referring to God the Father. And so Jesus' teaching is the teaching of His Heavenly Father. It is of divine origin. And this would have been different uh, from the rabbis in Jesus' day because they had rabbinic tradition. Again, they had their various schools of rabbis. And when the rabbis taught, the teachers, that's what rabbi means, um, when they taught, they would often quote their rabbinic tradition. They would quote certain rabbinic teachers. Again, Gamaliel, Gamaliel, all these other L's. And... uh, And they would have authority in that way. See, what I'm teaching is nothing new. It goes back, 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 back. Not so with Jesus. He just puts it out there. He states it with authority. And that's what he's doing here in the temple. At the Feast of Booths. Evidently. And so Jesus did not rely on the tradition. If we were to turn, you don't have to turn there. But John chapter 8, verse 28 says this. Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, excuse me, you will find or you will know that I am He, that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. Jesus is relaying, He is conveying the teaching, the doctrine of His heavenly Father. In John chapter 12, beginning in verse 49, Jesus says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, But the Father who sent me gave me a command what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that His command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, Jesus said, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. And so this is one of the reasons why He said in John chapter 5 and verse 23, That all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son 
does not honor the Father who sent Him. If you don't reckon with Jesus, if you don't bow to Jesus, if you do not receive His teaching and His gospel, you do not honor the Heavenly Father, His Heavenly Father, who sent Him. That's the claim of Christ. It's the claim of Scripture. And so as we think about that, what about the rest of the New Testament? I mean, Jesus ascended and then He sent out His apostles. Well, there's your clue right there. The apostles were sent ones on behalf of the ambassadors of Christ. And, and what do they say? Well, for instance, in Galatians 1 and verse 9, Paul is defending his message, his gospel. Because those same people who hated Jesus, the Judaizers, they came in and said, oh, don't listen to Paul, listen to us. Well, in Galatians 1, 9, Paul is defending his apostleship and his gospel. And he says, as we have said before, now I say again, if anyone preaches another gospel to you than that which you have received, that is from the apostles, from Christ, let him be accursed. In Galatians 1, verse 11, Paul says, But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of of Jesus Christ. And so the apostles of the New Testament, they are simply preaching and teaching the doctrine and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so then, the claim is, according to Scripture, that the gospel of Jesus, that the gospel of the Bible is directly from God Himself. The Christian faith is a revealed faith. No one can know it unless God revealed it, which He did. Now, someone might say, okay, Kevin, I, I see what Jesus is saying here, but really, I can't grasp this because I don't have all the facts. I, I don't know everything there is to know about Christ and God, and I have all these questions and, and so forth. Well, there's another thing that Jesus says here. That's in verse 17. And He teaches us that His doctrine, His teaching is discernible by a right attitude. Verse 17, if anyone wills to do his will, the Father's will, he shall know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. And so Jesus here has this promise. This promise is based on a condition. The promise is that one shall be able to discover whether or not Christ's doctrine is from God in heaven or whether it is merely the words of some man who lived 2,000 years ago. What's the condition? He says there, if anyone wills to do his will. That word will means desire. If anyone desires to do his desire. What is his desire? It's his will. God's will. How do we know what God's will is for us? Where do we find the prescribed will of God? It's in his word. His moral law and of course his word. And uh, if anyone desires to do the word of God, to follow God, and in particular to follow Christ, because God the Father calls men to listen to Christ. This is my beloved Son 
hear him. If anyone wills to do that, desires to do that, he shall know, that's the promise, he shall know whether I, Jesus, speak on my own authority, whether or not it is from God. So that's the promise we have here. And how is this possible, by the way? How is it possible that one would come to that point? It's only possible by the work of God the Holy Spirit and the gospel of God. We've seen this already. Jesus has taught this to Nicodemus, a teacher in Israel. John chapter 3, verses 3 and 5. Unless one is born again, he cannot enter or see the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, you must be born again. And that's how it's possible. And so by the time we read later in the New Testament, we find things like this. Paul speaking to the Christians at Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, it says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing. Because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, the apostles, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. So what I'm saying is that if a person comes to this point where they desire to do the desire of God, they will to do the will of God, it's because of God's work of grace within them. And so Romans 10, 17 reminds us faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, the word of Christ. Um, so it takes a heart that is humbled, not prideful, a heart that has been humbled by God. And uh, by the way, you've heard of John Calvin, perhaps a reformer, and he's written his commentaries, they're very good. And uh, just in passing, he, he writes a little history about himself and his commentary on the Psalms. And just in passing, he mentions how he was converted by God, how he came to Jesus. And the way he puts it in that place goes something like this. The Lord subdued my heart to teachableness. The Lord subdued my heart to teachableness. Proverbs 1 and verse 7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so in verse 17, Jesus says, He shall know. To put it another way, the proof is in the pudding. As someone has said, if a man says, I cannot be a Christian because <clears throat> there is so much of Christian doctrine that I do not understand it, and I must wait until I understand it all, the answer is you will never understand it all. But if you start trying to live the Christian life, you will understand more and more as the days go on. The truth of God will become clearer and clearer. In the history of the church, men, Christian men, have written about this Maybe you've heard of Aurelius Augustine, the North African who lived in the late 300s, early 400s. He, he put it this way in one of his works. He says, I believe in order to understand. Think about that. Do we not see that here in Christ in these words? He said, Augustine, I believe in order to understand. So in other words, there must be faith first for true understanding to come. And we are not omniscient. We will never be omniscient and all-knowing. That's an attribute of God alone. He's the creator. We're the creature. Another man later in the history of the church, Anselm, Anselm said that there's something like faith-seeking 
understanding. Faith seeking understanding. So that goes back to what Jesus says here. And so we see then that a right attitude towards the revealed word of God enables one to discern whether or not Jesus' message has come merely from man or God himself. Proverbs 25 and verse 9, the humble he guides in justice and the humble he teaches his way. He teaches the humble. He teaches the humble his way, how we should live. You know, it's kind of like OJT. On the job training. Uh, many moons ago when I was in the compressed air industry, um, you know, I just took this job, really didn't know much about it. And I had a boss who had lots of knowledge. And so he kept feeding me information so that I might do well at my job. He knew, well, that's a whole other topic, good leadership. He wanted to empower me to do well so that he would do well. But um, so he fed me all this information. Okay, so we're going to compress air with this machine. It's going to go downstream and somewhere it's going to be released and it's going to produce this powerful effect and, and people will use that power for different things. Well, how, how much demand do they have? How much CFM do they have? And what PSI should it be when it's released? Okay, so cubic feet per minute, pounds per square inch. So they need to clean the air. How many parts per million does the air need to move out? And does it need to be dry? And what dew point? And all this. It's confusing. But day after day, he taught me. And I trusted that the information he was giving to me, giving to me, was accurate. And every time I found out, well, yeah, it was. Immediately I put it to work. I, I acted upon it. I trusted him. But over time I saw clearer and clearer that what he had taught me, I could rely upon. Well, we argue from the lesser to the greater. That's the way it is when we follow our master, the rabbi of rabbis, the Lord Jesus Christ. He feeds us that information. We trust that what he's giving to us is the truth from the Father. From heaven, and as we apply it to our lives, we say, Okay, yeah, this is true. He is right. God's word is solid, it is our foundation. God Himself revealing Himself in Scripture is our foundation. Well, there's a third thing that Jesus teaches here, and in verse 18, He says that His doctrine glorifies God. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Jesus here gives us this principle that one way we can tell if a teacher is preaching or teaching the truth is whether or not it glorifies the living and true God. Now, we also have to be like the Bereans. We compare with Scripture what is being taught to see if this is what the Scriptures teach. But this is one glaring way we can tell. What does Jesus mean? If the teaching originates from man, his own ideas, his own thinking, his own desires, it will glorify him. If the teaching is from God, it will glorify God. And so if the idea is that the teacher or the preacher is calling disciples in theory to Jesus, but the way he does it and so forth, he's bringing disciples to himself and not God, watch out. He's not bringing glory to himself, or rather, not to God. He's bringing glory to himself. So Paul, he talks about this in 1 Corinthians, right? There are some who say, I'm a Paul or I'm of Apollos. 
And perhaps that's the fault of the listeners in that case. It can work both ways. But does the doctrine glorify God? I mean, does the biblical gospel glorify man or does it glorify God? I mean, you have those out there. You can live your best life. Or if you give $1,000, God is going to bless you with $10,000. This is off in the 90s. It's outdated probably now. But, but that's what was going on then. It comes in different packages and different forms every decade. There are those who teach heresy. And all the focus is on man. The biblical doctrine comes to us. The Bible's teaching comes and says God is the creator. We are the creatures. He is all-knowing, as I said earlier. We are not. He is the majestical one. We are but dust. We're made in His image. Um, he is holy, holy, holy. Like Isaiah says, we are unholy. We are doomed. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live amongst a people of unclean lips because of our hearts. Our hearts are unclean. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. In order to be right with God, it is impossible for us to do anything to get right with God. No, God must come down. He must come down and save us. And we're not just sick, we're dead in our sins and trespasses. He must raise us from the dead. Yes, we must have repentance and turn from our wicked life to Him. We must have faith and cast ourselves on Jesus, but we cannot do that unless He gives us faith, unless He gives us the gift of repentance. And so the biblical gospel glorifies the sovereign, almighty, true, and living God. The Apostle Paul was concerned about this, to mention the apostles as well. In Galatians chapter 6, in verse 12 he says, As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. They don't want to talk about the cross. They don't want to talk about suffering. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. They want disciples. They want to say, look how many disciples I've got. Look how many people I've got on Sunday morning. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What did Paul glory in? The cross of Jesus Christ. That which humbles the sinner and exalts the living and true God. And so a glaring way to test whether or not a teacher has a message from God is to listen to his message, to see if it exalts God or not. This was the problem with the Pharisees. Yes, Jesus says, do as they do, but not as they say. But in that same passage, Matthew 23, he said this, all their works they do to be seen by man. They love the best seats at the feasts, the best seats in the synagogues. They love to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. Teacher, teacher. Doctor, doctor. John Calvin again said, no man can faithfully, I'm not jealous for, for you know, people who have doctorates, we need them. 
But when men love the letters and the titles next to their names more than they love Jesus and His cross, there's obviously an issue. Calvin said, No man can faithfully discharge the office of teacher in the church unless he be void of ambition and resolved to make it his sole object to promote to the utmost of his power the glory of God. So let us beware of those who desire to be celebrity preachers and teachers. Some are put in that position, no doubt, within the divine providence of God. But watch out for those who love it, because it is so. Isaiah 42, 8, God says, I will share my glory with whom? No man. And so in verse 18, Jesus says, there is no unrighteousness in him. Perhaps he's referring to God the Father, also by implication himself. This goes back to what Jesus was accused of earlier when they said he was a deceiver earlier in the chapter. So then you say, okay, so I'm to put the message of Jesus to the test. He says his message comes from divine origin. If I seek him in faith and obedience, I will be able to discern whether or not his teaching is true. But can you give me a little something else? Well, that's the last thing here quickly. Verses 19 through 24. Jesus calls us to investigate his works. I think God knows our weaknesses, that we are weak and frail, especially since the fall. And here in this section, Jesus goes on the offensive. Um, You know, they accuse him of being a deceiver. Well, he goes on the offensive in verse 19. Does not Moses give you the law? None of you keeps the law. And why do you seek to kill me? He knows. Well, there are more than just the religious leaders here at this time. There are others who had flocked to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. And the people answered and said, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. We know from chapter 5 who is seeking to kill him, the Jews, the authorities. Why? Because of what he did on the Sabbath. He healed the man. So in verse 21, Jesus said, I did one work and you all marvel. What is he talking about? Well, he's going to talk about the Sabbath here. Remember what happened in John chapter 5? Jesus healed that man at the pool, which was at Bethesda. And it was on the Sabbath. What was then the Sabbath day? Saturday. And the Jews latched onto that. That he healed a man on the Sabbath day. That the man picked up his bed on the Sabbath day. Not that Jesus had healed this man completely, immediately, powerfully. And Jesus says, I did one work and he latched onto that. But we see that that one work had its intended effect. They all marveled. They were in amazement. They wondered at this sign. It should make someone say, well, how can this be? You know, this man, he healed this woman of cancer. He healed this man of his lameness. Rise up and walk, whatever it is. How in the world could he do that? He must be from somewhere else. He must be granted divine power from Almighty God. That's the purpose of signs and wonders, by the way. Signs and wonders are not something that just continue throughout the ages of the church. No, ultimate healing comes at the resurrection. 
Just so you know, bodily, physical healing comes at the time of the resurrection. That's our hope. In Scripture, when you see signs and miracles and wonders, it is because God is revealing Himself through His servants, through His prophets. And as we said before, that's the way they flash their badge. They're saying, I am from Jehovah God. Listen to me. Whether it was Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha, the prophets, Christ and the apostles, that was the purpose of signs and wonders, to authenticate the word that was being spoken and to say it is from God Almighty. And so if we were to study, we don't have time, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 10. I think we see there that Paul teaches that when the completion of the New Testament comes, when it had come, that which is perfect, that which is in part shall be done away. What is in part? The signs and wonders and all that. Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? And so, Jesus' healing on the Sabbath had its intended effect. It was to amaze, to give a sense of awe and wonder. That's undeniable. Undeniable. Jesus is saying it here. No one stands up and says, nope, nope, I know how you did it. You did this and you did that. It was a fake, it was a phony, here's how you did it. No. And so his healing on the Sabbath, he will then argue, was no different than their circumcision on the Sabbath. And so if you were to read 22 through 23, his argumentation goes like this. Okay, so you guys have circumcision. Um, It's really not from Moses, it's it's from the patriarchs, and God gave it to them. Um, If a man, verse 23, receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses should not be broken. Stop right there. His point is, is that according to God's word, a... Boy, an infant child boy, is to be circumcised on what day? The eighth day. What if, as it would happen, the eighth day fell on a Sabbath and it was time for that young child, that infant, to be circumcised? Jesus is saying, you you go ahead, you do it. You circumcise that child on the eighth day. That is a work. That is a work of cleansing. It signifies cleansing. It is a ceremonial activity. And Jesus is masterfully arguing from the lesser to the greater. And it goes something like this. If you bring healing and perform a work of cleansing on the Sabbath, and you only do that to part of a person's body, and yet I heal completely a person's body on the Sabbath, what is your beef with me? How can you say that what I do is wrong when I didn't heal the whole man, and you only heal part of the man? In fact, my work is greater than yours. That's what he's saying. So Jesus is asking them, how can they hold him in contempt when they do the same thing, at least in principle? Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, of course, and he is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. Let us not forget that. He is our rest. And so Jesus' miracles are undeniable. They confirm his divine message. He has not sinned by healing on the Sabbath day. He is righteous. And therefore, those who inquire as to the truthfulness, the veracity of His message, they must be careful to examine His words and His works carefully. And so if you look at verse 24, you can understand what He means then. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with the righteous judgment. 
We can take that verse out of context. Or maybe we can make a... We shouldn't take it out of context. I don't mean that we should. But we could understand a secondary application. But let's understand it in its context. What is he saying? Judge according... Or judge not according to appearance. Do not look at something at how you might think it is and make a rash, quick judgment. Don't look at me, Jesus is evidently saying, uh, in essence. Don't just look at me and come to the wrong conclusion. I'm breaking the Sabbath. No, consider what it is that I'm doing. Consider then what it is I'm saying, who I am. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with a righteous judgment. Make an assessment based on what is righteous. What is righteous? That which is right. Who determines what is right? God. But it's in accordance with the truth, the way things are. In other words, we have this call to evaluate Jesus' teaching according to the truth and the evidence. So that is what's being taught here. Let me make two areas of application in light of what we've seen. Number one, we have an application for the skeptic. Those who have not come to Jesus, those who waver in coming to Jesus, what should we say to them? We should say something like this. Have you prayerfully considered and examined the claims of the Bible in their context, without bias, without prejudice, Have you weighed carefully the words of Jesus Christ, His claims of deity, His assessment of the human condition, there's none righteous, His reason for coming to earth to lay down His life a ransom for many, to save sinners from their sins in hell forever, to escape the judgment of God. And have you studied His works? Have you considered that historians tell us He nearly banished disease from Palestine because He healed so many. And that no one denied what it is that He did. His healings. When it came to the resurrection, there were over 500 witnesses. Yes, there were those later who conspired to put together some conspiracy theory to discredit Him. But the Bible is clear that those who were there saw Him. Over 500 witnesses. And so when we think about that and the significance of who Jesus says He is, we need to tell such a person as the skeptic, you need to make sure that you carefully evaluate Jesus' words, His works, that you judge with the righteous judgment. And if not, terrible judgment will come to you at the last day. But if you acknowledge Him and flee to Him, He will give rest to your soul. What about you, the Christian? What about me? The Christian. The believer. It is here that you will find assurance for your faith. John's Gospel was written. Why? That we might believe in the Son of God and that believing we might have salvation in His name. To paraphrase what John says there. But for Christians then, as we see that, it is written for us to embolden, to strengthen our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So consider Jesus' words. Put them to the test. Obey Him. See that they're true. Consider His works. 
His undeniable works on the pages of Scripture. You might be sitting there this morning and you would not want your neighbor to know what you're going through. That inside, you're, you're like that man whose child was going to be healed by Jesus and he says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. You have doubt. There are times you doubt. Look at Jesus' words. Look at His works. May your faith be strengthened. That's where it comes from. The Spirit-empowered Word of God. And so we have here, as believers, help for defending our faith. Right? Direct others to the words of Jesus. Direct others to the works of Jesus and Scripture and call upon them to come to the Savior. After all, we have good reason as to why we believe and follow the Lord Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, You are the truth. Jesus is the faithful Amen. He is the One who is risen and reigning, who was and is and is to come. Lord, in especially our day and at all times, help us to be found in the truth, to be digesting the truth, to be believing the truth, and to be living the truth, and to rest upon You and the One who is the truth, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.